0: This Saturday marks the 78th anniversary of the official signing of the surrender documents, Japan's surrender that brought the end of World War II. Uh, a document, by the way, at least the, the Japanese version of the document, uh, that Canada botched, or more specifically, uh, Colonel Lawrence Cosgrave, who was the Canadian delegate uh, to the surrender ceremony, he signed the wrong line and it was a whole big kerfuffle. Uh, But yes, that brought about the end of the war. And there was that gap, of course, between Germany's surrender in May and then Japan's surrender that was announced in mid-August and then officially signed, as mentioned, on September 2nd. For the past month or so, the movie Oppenheimer has been doing big business at the box office. And with all of that, it's it's renewed a lot of uh, interest, fascination, and yes, debate about the decision to develop the atomic bomb or more specifically the decision to use it on Japan to bring about the end of the war. Was that necessary? Why was that decision made? Well, all of this is the topic uh, of a new and important book uh, called Road to Surrender, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II. Uh, Joining us on the line here this afternoon is the book's author, uh, Evan Thomas, is the author of now 11 books, spent more than 30 years at uh, Time Magazine and Newsweek. Joins us on the line here, Evan Thomas, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I mean, your thoughts on how the, the film Oppenheimer has contributed to the, uh, the the conversation or the debate or at least the, the interest in, in all of this.
1: Well, it's a, it's a good thing, I think, because there's a risk that we forget how terrible the atom bomb is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's been a long time, and time passes, and, you know, people started talking about using the darn things again. Uh, Putin, the right. Russians have, and there's... You know, it's conce- people even talk about a limited nuclear war, we start fighting with the Chinese. It's a good thing to be reminded how dreadful those weapons are. And, and to remember that the, the bombs we now have on the top of our missiles are 100 times more powerful than the bombs used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really dreadful weapons. Now, I, I've written a book which argues that we actually had to use them. Uh, I, not a conclusion that I wanted to come to or anybody ever wants to come to. But uh, at the same time, I, I, I think it's a very good thing for people to think really hard about these weapons again uh, with an eye towards you know, never, never using them again
0: right and and the decisions or you know the events that led up to the decision we tend to think I, I think of you know World War II well it ended in 1945 Germany surrendered then Japan surrendered and we sort of you know mush it all together but there was a very important period between May when Germany surrendered and then a few months later when Japan ultimately did why, why didn't or why wouldn't Japan surrender at that point first of all
1: well part of it is a kind of a craziness a madness that seized the Japanese uh, 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 at the very top of the government, the military was, was just suicidal. They wanted to fight this last ghastly battle against the Americans. But part of it was not totally crazy, because even though they knew they were defeated in the sense that their fleet had been sunk and the Americans were, going to overwhelm them in an invasion, what they wanted, what the Japanese wanted, was they wanted to avoid an occupation of Japan. Mm-hmm. They also wanted to avoid war crimes trials because they'd all get hung. The leaders would get hung, they knew it, and they wanted to keep their emperor. And they thought that if they could force America and the Allies to invade, they could inflict so much harm, they could kill so many people, that we would allow them to have their islands. They would be defeated, but we would not occupy them. They could keep their emperor, they would avoid getting hung. That was not crazy, because they had a million men waiting for us, we knew where we were coming. We were scheduled to invade on the southern island of Japan, Kyushu, on November 1st, 1945. The Japanese knew we were coming. They had 7,000 kamikaze planes waiting for us, a million men. Uh, that that invasion would have been a bloodbath of historic proportions. We lost, uh, Americans lost about 12,000 men in Okinawa, 7,000 men in Iwo the estimates were like, more like a quarter of a million men, up to a million men. So, you know, to avoid that bloodbath, we might have given the Japanese what they wanted. What changed everything was dropping not one, but two atom bombs on Japan. That was something the military could not deal with. And the emperor, who was afraid that the third bomb was coming for him, finally agreed to surrender. It was a very close-run thing. Uh, they, most people don't realize this, but there was a coup attempt on the last night, right before they surrendered. And they, they almost did not surrender, even after two out But they finally did.
0: One of the three men you profile in the book or sort of base the story around was Japan's foreign minister at the time. And he was actually a voice, maybe one of only a few, but was a voice uh, who, who believed that Japan should surrender. How, how rare was that sentiment in those those summer months? Uh,
1: uh, unique at the top. I mean, there were, Japan was run by a war council, a Supreme War Council, six people, military, war minister, army, navy, chiefs of staff, and they wanted to fight to the end. Only one person, his name was Shigenori Togo, wanted to surrender. He was the lone civilian. He was the foreign minister. You could see how crazy it was to fight to the end, but he was alone, and he he was taking a very risky position. Because even the word surrender was banned in the Japanese government. You couldn't even use the word. And he was at risk of being assassinated by the young hotheads who were just sort of one notch down from where he was, the colonels and majors, who really were uh, suicidal is the only word for it. They just wanted to fight to the bitter end, and they were threatening to assassinate anybody who got in the way. That was not an idle threat. Two prime ministers had been assassinated in Japan in the 1930s. It was known as government by assassination. So Togo, who's kind of the hero of the book, took a great risks to try to gradually nudge the Japanese emperor and the Japanese rulers towards surrendering. And finally, with the help of two atom bombs, he succeeded.
0: So it was July 16th of that year with the Trinity test. The, the test of the A-bomb was conducted and, and then it became known that that was an option. So in the lead up to July 16th, how far along then was planning for an invasion?
1: Very far along. They, uh, you know, these they knew what an undertaking it was. It was going to be the largest invasion in history. Uh, a million men hitting the beaches. That's about uh, four or five times the size of the D-Day invasion, of the initial invasion. Uh, and... They, you know, they were, General MacArthur was going to lead it, the famous Douglas MacArthur, uh, and it was going to be, they had, (laughs) they were getting extra coffin, coffin manufacturers and hospital ships, dozens of hospital ships ready for the bloodbath they knew that would ensue.
0: So the decision to, to drop the bomb and so one of these individuals comes into focus here, Harry Stimson. How important was he then in making that decision?
1: He was the, the war minister, the secretary of war in the United States. And he was kind of the chairman of the board and he was struggling personally with this. He knew he, he knew that it was almost inevitable we would have to use this thing. Uh, he, but he didn't want to. He, he thought, well, maybe we we'll let the Emperor them, keep their emperor, that would do it. But he was struggling because he was a mixture of a hard-nosed guy and an idealist. And so the hard-nosed side said, we've got to use this thing. The more idealistic side said, isn't there some way to avoid it? In his diary, he referred to the atom bomb as the terrible, the awful, the diabolical, a Frankenstein monster. He knew how horrible it was, but he just didn't see any way around it. To show you how uh, upset he was about this, on the morning after Hiroshima, after when he took the photographs of Hiroshima, to showed them to President Sherman. This is the, the photographs of what Hiroshima looked like, the aerial photographs. And what it showed was that Hiroshima was just ashes. It looked like the inside of an ashtray. Mm-hmm. Simpson that morning had a heart attack. Now, he was 77 years old. You know, maybe it's coincidence, but I, I don't think so. Uh, I think he was just emotionally done in by it. And uh, he had another heart attack a month later, two months later, when he proposed, he proposed that we try to have early arms control, a nuclear freeze, share the secrets with the Russians. And he was turned down in this desire by Truman and the rest of the government said no. And uh, Simpson had a had a major heart attack. So he is, he, he, part of my book is his personal interior agony over this decision.
0: And I mean, debate has persisted for decades, and I would imagine there was debate at the time. You know, A, do we need to do this? B, you know, would would just a demonstration of this suffice? Or would one bomb suffice? All of these questions, right, about how and whether and how many would be necessary.
1: Yeah, on the demonstration they did talk about that. I mean, some people said, look, couldn't we set one of these off on a desert island someplace, yeah. uh, you know, without killing people? and. It was rejected fairly quickly because, of because, uh, what, what, well, what if a Japanese shot down the bomber carrying the bombs? We only had two bombs at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if they put American POWs at the site, which the Japanese were fully capable of doing? What if the bomb was a dud? You know, we'd only tested one of them. All of those reasons made it just too risky. And so after a fairly brief debate, it was decided, no, we're going to have to drop it on a city to show that we mean business. Now that sounds harsh, right. but as we now know, we didn't know at the time, but we now know from Japanese documents and diaries, it really did take that demonstration to convince the Japanese, and not, not just one bomb. I always used to wonder, you know, did we really have to do two of them? Yeah. I think the answer is yes, because uh, just let me paint one scene for you. After we dropped the second bomb, after the Supreme War Council is meeting, and they get word a second Hiroshima-style bomb has just wiped out Nagasaki, and the war minister, the most powerful guy in the room, says, "Wouldn't it be beautiful if the entire country was to perish like a beautiful flower?" And he said, "Let them drop a hundred bombs." Wow. Now that crazy talk was partly bluster to convince his juniors that he, what a tough guy he was, but it also shows you the sort of suicidal feel there. They just and the, the war council, the Supreme War Council, was divided. Three wanted to surrender, three did not. And J- Japan at the time, you had to have consensus before you went to the emperor. So they were deadlocked, and, and the debate just went on and on. Uh,
0: Hiroshima had some military significance, but that, that wasn't why it was chosen necessarily. But why was that the, the first target?
1: Well, it did have some military significance. It was a military headquarters for the... Kyushu, where we were landing. So they, were, they did have military. No, and this port city was a big military port. However, that's really not what was going on here. They wanted... They, they weren't sure that they could hit it. You know, they, or the targeting was not that accurate. Dropping a bomb from 30,000 feet was hard. And so they, the targeters decided to put it smack in the middle of a big city to make sure they wouldn't miss... To not aim at a port or not aim at a military plant or 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 headquarters, but to aim at the smack, right dab in the middle of the city. And that was because they were afraid they would miss and because they wanted to make a giant demonstration of the bomb's power. It sounds kind of bloodthirsty today, but there was very little debate over this. Uh, that's that's what they did, and they did tried to do it again in Nagasaki's case. Nagasaki was actually the secondary target. They went... The primary target, Kokura, was clouded over by smoke from an earlier bombing. That's crazy. Uh, And they they dropped it on Nagasaki, where a mile off target killed half as many people. But, you know, these are devastating bombs. They killed over 100,000. In two cities, 100,000 people died pretty much instantly.
0: Well, and and yes, and, and I mean, you know, the film... It really emphasizes the you know the you know, the horrors of that and, and how that weighed on everybody. And, and your book certainly focuses on that as well. You had an op-ed earlier this year in The Washington Post sort of making that point or elaborating on that point that, yes, here, this bomb saved lives. But, as the headline says, we must never use it again. And that, that's part of the lesson here is understanding the horrors uh, of using the bomb. It is. I, it's,
1: this is sort of an awkward thing that I've written a book basically – justifying the use of these weapons, but the real meaning is never again. Yeah. Uh, you could say that uh, there was a salutary benefit to dropping those bombs, which is that it was so horrible. I, I, was, I wrote a book about Eisenhower, and in the 1950s, I was reading the minutes of our National Security Council, and they were debating whether to use a nuclear weapon in Korea to try to end the Korean War. And they talked about the taboo these are Eisenhower and his top lieutenants, the taboo on on using nuclear weapons. Why? because they were so horrible, and that taboo has lasted you know how was it now seventy five years or more okay. uh, let's hope it lasts forever. but you know I again, as we were saying the, you know earlier, people forget and they forget how terrible these weapons are they they we mustn't uh, that That's why I'm glad to see this movie. I'm glad to have people
0: talk about it. Absolutely. Well, the book is called Road to Surrender, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II. Evan Thomas, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. really appreciate the conversation.
1: Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me.
0: All the best. Take care. Uh, There you go. That's uh, Evan Thomas, uh, author of now 11 books. His latest is called Road to Surrender. An interesting look at uh, how World War II finally came to an end. In those fateful few months between Germany's surrender and ultimately Japan's surrender. But yes, it was historic in that sense that it was uh, the first use or use is of an atomic bomb. And it caused a lot of devastation, a lot of civilian loss of life. Was it necessary? Was it justified? As Evan says, there was debate at the time. There's been debate ever since. So Evan Thomas makes the case as difficult as it is that it was absolutely necessary. That an invasion of Japan would have been necessary to bring about the war, and the toll from that would have been, I mean, it, it was unthinkable. You know, as he says, you look at the loss of life that occurred over some, you know, small island battles. An invasion of Japan it would have been a massive death toll. So do you buy the idea that it had to be done? You know, 78 years after Japan's surrender, we're, we're still talking about it, and I think, as mentioned now, with uh, certainly with the movie Oppenheimer. Uh, there's some renewed interest in in all of this, right? The path to developing the bomb, and then then the decision to use it. Well, as naive as Canada's uh, environment minister, Stephen Guilbeau, has been and is still toward China. Maybe I was naive myself in thinking that this visit to China, this trip to China, wouldn't happen. That some common sense might prevail here. And either the minister himself or somebody in government would realize that this is terrible timing to have a Canadian cabinet minister visit China in any official capacity. Unfortunately, common sense did not prevail Uh, Stephen Gubeau, who was defending this trip right from the get-go, has now embarked on this trip. Uh, So this is all part of the China Council for International Cooperation on Environment and Development. Uh, This conference uh, is underway in Beijing. Now, Canada helped found this back in the early 90s, and technically, Canada's environment minister remains a vice chair. Uh, Things have certainly changed uh, in recent years with regard to our relationship with China. And certainly when it comes to China's belligerence on the global stage, there are many reasons why we should want to disengage from something like this, to not use our good reputation when it comes to environmental leadership uh, to give cover to China to make it appear as though China is doing anything even remotely serious right now to address these issues. This is not an arm's length think tank by any stretch. We, we are engaging here with China's government. Now, as mentioned, Stephen Gubel has defended this trip. In fact, just a few days ago, in an interview with the CBC, uh, the minister said, quote, we will confront them when we have to confront them. We will also cooperate on issues like climate change and nature. Well, China is making it clear there's going to be no confronting. There's going to be no confrontation. There's going to be nothing even resembling a condescending tone. A very deliberately worded and deliberately timed op-ed in the Global Times, which is published by the Chinese Communist Party Central Committee, warned against any kind of a condescending tone from Stephen Gilbo, while at this meeting that they're not going to tolerate any criticism on the environment or any criticism on anything else. It's already drawing a line in the sand here to the minister to watch his step and watch what he says. Look, if we're, we're not allowed to to speak critically at all of China in, in any capacity, despite some obvious, obvious areas where we would, it's hard to see what the point of going is. And yet the minister went. Well, joining us to talk more about some of the concerns around and all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Charles Burton, of course, a former counselor at the Kennedy Embassy in Beijing, associate professor of political science at Brock University, and senior fellow at the McDonnell Laurier Institute, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Professor Burton, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Good to speak with you, Rob. I
0: mean, look, it's been, I think, what, about four years since we've had a Canadian cabinet minister in China uh, in any official capacity, and much has happened in the ensuing four years. What kind of a message does it send or would Beijing be taking from from Stephen Gubow's visit to China here?
2: Well, I think that, you know, it's one thing to go there and talk about how we think that they ought to stop building coal-fired plants every week. And should get with the program and you know respect our ideas about uh, what nations should be doing to to stave off climate change. It's another thing for Mr. Gilbo to be a vice chair of a Chinese front organization dedicated to um trying to to um, um you know stave off criticism of china- of china's uh environment record and right. even more amazing that that this institution is partially funded by canada and has an office in in winnipeg previously in vancouver and so we're essentially assisting the chinese to to engage in influence and propaganda operations uh, on our dime. so you know this is this is a bit worrying i the chinese leadership has made it clear that they are not going to take any advice from outsiders on on climate i think we can take them at their word on that, and you know any idea that they might suggest to Mr. gilbo that if Canada is a bit friendlier to China and say doesn't have a Foreign Influence uh, uh, Transparency Registry Act or doesn't engage in a of public inquiry with regard to Canada's um, concerns over uh, allegations of serious allegations of Chinese state interference in our democratic electoral process, that maybe they would start to see things his way i mean you know but we just i've seen this movie before and we really you know we we really shouldn't be uh making the same kind of error with regard to trusting the chinese regime and feeling that you know we can work some kind of of under under the under the radar agreement uh, with regard to us being nicer to them in Canada and they'll they'll be nicer to us on on our concerns over climate, it just doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah, to what extent here is is China kind of using Canada's reputation, or at least ha- by having our minister, uh, vice chair of this committee, make a part of the these meetings and creating the appearance that China's being multilateral, working with other countries, trying to be productive. We're, we're sort of playing into their hands, maybe in that regard, aren't we?
2: Yeah, I think we are being played, and I think it's unfortunate. Mister Gilbo doesn't fully recognize this. He did suggest that he was aware that there would be criticism of his going to China, but you know, this he he really we really should have uh, folded up the the Chinese NGO on environment, um, you know, at least after the Kovarikins' favor arbitrary arrests, yeah. and probably before that when we recognized that. You know the Chinese government is talking a good line, but they really have no intention of of getting uh getting it together with climate change and there seems to be some suggestion that they're really thinking well you know if if every other country engages in in climate change uh abating measures that will make the chinese products more competitive in the global market because they can be produced by not engaging in environmentally friendly production practices so you
1: know
2: I, I, maybe i'm being too cynical about this but you know it's really very hard to to deal with the chinese regime and expect that that canada can influence them in a positive way i mean as as uh, as idealistic a man as mr Kilbo may be i think right. he's way out of his depth on this one
0: it certainly seems that way. And and yeah, look, I mean, we shouldn't be under any illusions. This, this is in no sense an arm's length think tank. I don't know that, that there would even be such a thing in this context. I mean, we're, we're very much talking about dealing with the regime here.
2: Yeah, I mean, people who are associated with that think tank are also associated with the Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department influence operations. And, it's, you know, it's sort of like hiding in plain sight. It's pretty clear what this is about. And I think that they hope to, to engage Mr. Gilbo and get him to to make uh, some sort of commitments to China that we will um respect their concerns and they might give us something back in the environment if if we're uh, you know if if we're respectful enough of that. And as you pointed out in your introduction, they've already put out this really appallingly insulting Um, editorial in a Chinese Communist Party newspaper that Mr. Gilbo should not be condescending to China. Well, I mean, if if they're setting that up from the word go, I would say let's cancel the trip and uh, do something. You know, he's got a lot of things on his plate. Does he really want to be spending so much time in China where it's not likely to achieve any of the purposes of his ministry?
0: No, it certainly doesn't look that way at this point. also wanted to ask you, you had an op-ed in the Globe and Mail talking about some of the uh, growing economic angst in China. I mean, I I don't know how much uh, the environment is a priority right now, uh, but clearly China has has bigger things to worry about. What what are some of the, the signs that you're seeing about where the Chinese economy is headed, what it could mean for Beijing's leadership?
2: Well, I think that, you know, in the past week, we've seen um, articles in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Economist, the New York Times, all expressing um, concern over the fundamentals of China's economic outlook and the apparent inability of the regime to address these. So, you know, you're seeing deflation, prices going down, uh, problems in supply chains, um they they're no longer issuing statistics on youth unemployment because it looks like among high school grads and recent university grads that the unemployment rate is like over thirty percent they claim twenty one point three percent um you know the real estate sector is imploding there are two major real estate companies in China which are close to to going bust, leaving people who are paid in advance for their their property uh, holding the bag, you know. In other words, you pay the full price for the property, and then no, no apartment is being built. Um, and a lot of people in China who have put their life savings into real estate, in the expectation that the values will go up, and that can, you know, be their social security right. in old age, who are facing the prospect of the real estate values cratering. So you know, there's just so many things about uh, the Chinese economy which are not going well. Part of it is due to their extreme COVID policies, which closed down the economy for long periods. Mm -hmm. Part of it is due to Mr. Xi's own policies of trying to bring more economic activity back into the control of the state, and that never works well, as we know. You know, um, encouraging successful entrepreneurs and that kind of thing. So if the economy in china starts to go badly would it lead to mr xi wanting to distract the people from the reality of of failed policies or whatever by by engaging in some international incident such as attempting to annex taiwan right. and that you know would be disastrous for china for taiwan and for global peace so you know i think that i think we do have a lot of concerns and let's remember china's a nuclear power too so you know you can't ignore the fact that they have that nuclear capability i think we tend to sort of think oh well everybody you know so many countries have it but it it is it remains a danger and and remains a big concern and the fact that china feels cornered by increasing alliances with the united states with south korea and japan that, that biden met with last week and the uh, the australian uk us alliance and the quad which involves with india you know, they their backs are up against the wall, and does that mean that they might lash out with a view to trying to protect the existing authoritarian rule of the one-party Communist Party under the strongman leader Mr. Xi? It's all I don't know. You know, you just hope it's not happening the way it looks like it's yeah. happening, but the data is just is just too strong to ignore.
0: Indeed. Something worth keeping a close eye on. As mentioned, your op on that, it's uh, at theglobeandmail.com. Much more at McDonnellLaurier.ca. Uh, Charles Burton, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us here. I always appreciate the insight.
2: Great to speak with you, Rob.
0: All right. Likewise. There you go. That's Charles Burton, uh, senior fellow of McDonnell Laurier Institute, the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, former counselor at the Canadian Embassy uh, in Beijing. So his thoughts on, on what's going on in China right now in terms of uh, the economy and something to keep a close eye on. And his thoughts on uh, Stephen Gibbo and the environment minister's rather naive approach uh, to this environmental conference. China is going to do what it's going to do. Even if you really want to be so charitable as to give China the benefit of the doubt, they care about the environment, they want to reduce emissions, they're going to do it their way. So the idea that we have any kind of influence uh, over them is is kind of laughable. And it is pretty clear, given this uh, op-ed in this what's officially basically an, an arm of, of the Chinese Communist Party, warning Canada to watch its mouth, basically, warning the minister to watch what he says – It's pretty clear they're not really interested in any kind of criticism here. If the minister wants to fawn over them, sure, that's great. He can do that all day long. Let's hope that uh, he doesn't, though. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Our number 403-974-TALK, 974-8255. We'll get some more of your phone calls later in this hour. Much more still to get to this afternoon. Uh, looking overseas uh, in Scandinavia, uh, specifically uh, earlier this month, for example, Sweden raised its terror threat level uh, from three to four on a five point scale, implying uh, or suggesting a high threat. And that came just days uh, after uh, two men at the heart of a month's long debate over a Koran burning set the Islamic holy book on fire outside Stockholm's royal palace. So high profile and provocative and and designed to be both. And we've seen similar incidents in other Scandinavian countries. So the security threat is high and the expected response or retaliation, I guess, uh, from extremists who who view that uh, that practice a certain way. But what's interesting is not just the the preparation, preparing for uh, that kind of response, but the story of Denmark is kind of concerning in its own way. The Danish government has officially tabled legislation that could lead to a ban on not just banning the Koran, but basically publicly desecrating any religious book or holy text. The irony here is just a few years ago, Denmark repealed its 300-year-old blasphemy law. And this would essentially be bringing one back. Is that the right response to this kind of a situation? We, we shouldn't tolerate book burning, right? I mean, book burning, I think, in, in many ways, is a sign of ignorance. Uh, burning the Bible or burning the Quran is very much seen as an aggressive message toward that religious faith or followers of that religious faith. But it's also a statement. And certainly in, in a country that values freedom of religion, freedom of speech— Rejecting, criticizing, condemning religion uh, certainly should be tolerated, uh, certainly not criminalized. Uh, So the draft law in Denmark, anyone who publicly or with the intention of spreading it a wider circle is guilty of improper treatment of an object with significant religious significance for a religious community or an object that appears as such is punished with a fine or imprisonment for up to two years. So what kind of response is that to, to this whole situation? How, how do we need to approach all of this? Well, joining us for some thoughts, really pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Hemant Mehta, who's editor at FriendlyAtheist.com, a writer, YouTuber, podcaster, had a great write-up this week on why this uh, response is so problematic. Hemant, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
3: Hey, Rob. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh it feels like we've kind of been through this before going all the way back to the uh, you know the whole outrage over the Danish cartoons the the Mohammed cartoons in Denmark and and so here we go again now with these kind of debates about how far people can or should or be allowed to go when it comes to provoking a religious sentiment. So what do you make of of how this is all unfolding here first of all?
3: Sure. And and you know what we should have a conversation about whether publishing those deliberately offensive and provocative cartoons, or deliberately trying to provoke people by burning a holy book, we should absolutely have a conversation about whether that's a strategically good move, whether it makes any sense to do it, whether we're hurting people's feelings. I mean, I don't want to discredit any of that. The problem right now is saying that if you hurt the religious sensibilities of particular groups... We're going to punish that with a potential prison sentence. At that point, you were saying any lip service we give to freedom of expression, freedom of speech, that takes a backseat to the feelings of certain communities. And I think that's a step in the wrong direction.
0: Right. And I think the concerning thing here, too, is that you know, it's not as though Denmark's government believes in principle. that that this is necessary, but it's almost a a reaction out of fear. Like, we need to do this, uh, because if we don't, something bad is going to happen.
3: Yeah, and here's the thing. A lot of uh, the politicians in Denmark said actually sensible things when these uh, provocative burnings started happening. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but they said they condemned the actions, but also they said those are not crimes you know and i know that's a hard place to draw a line between because people want to see those burnings stop you know what so do i i don't know what people think they are going to get out of it mm-hmm. that is worth trying to just alienate and anger and upset that many people who haven't done anything wrong um but you're right i think they are doing this out of fear because people want to see them take action to put a stop to it but the way to put a stop to it is not by punishing thought crimes by punishing victimless crimes i am assuming of course that the books they are burning are their own there's no theft there's nothing like that going on but if you're punishing the crime and making it a law to stop that why stop there what's going to happen the next time someone just draws a picture that is offensive to certain religious communities. What qualifies as a religion? Hey, there are plenty of, sec- uh, of secular things that people can cherish and take very seriously. And if you, you know, you set fire to uh, uh, on the origin of species, there are people that might get upset about it. But of course, that's not being targeted under this law. So again, it's trying to just carve out a special exemption for religious books. But it's such a badly defined draft law that just kind of privileges religious beliefs over anything else that is happening, over other types of books, over other types of people that may have strong feelings. Um, And I see that as a slippery slope toward a place that no one wants to go to, certainly not in Denmark, where they're known as a place that respects, you know, freedom of expression.
0: Right. Yeah, I think it was 2017, maybe, where, you know, Denmark got rid of its blasphemy law, uh, it's right. just kind and, of a law basically you know is. The
3: story, right? When they got rid of the blasphemy law, I, I think the bigger headline was, I didn't know Denmark had a blasphemy law. That seems like a place where they would have repealed it a long time ago. So it was a necessary thing to do, but it took a long time to get there. But it was the right move because, of course, I think everyone who supported that move understood blasphemy is a victimless crime. So no one should be punished for condemning, criticizing saying offensive things that might offend religious sensibilities. Again, there is a separate debate to be had about whether you should do it, Mm -hmm. but for Denmark to say you cannot do it is a bridge too far, and they recognize that and they got rid of the blasphemy law. Why bring back even a portion of it, at least in theory? That seems like they're moving backwards.
0: Yeah, and I think if if we're to buy into the premise, and maybe it's part of the premise that that somehow this is tantamount to hate speech, like banning a Quran is hate speech against Muslims. But if if the law only recognizes religious texts, you can make the same oh, right. argument that burning a book that's about uh, gay rights is would be a hate yeah. crime toward uh, you know the LGBTQ community, or, or burning a book about um, you know civil rights could be a, a form of hate speech, but. You'd still be allowed, I guess, under this law to, to burn those yeah, kinds of I votes.
3: mean, that's the thing. If, if someone burns a Quran, it could be prosecuted as basically a hate crime under this proposed law. But if a group of extremists burned a secular book that supported LGBTQ civil rights, that would actually get a free pass. And again, I'm not saying either of those is a good idea. I'm not saying I support either one, uh, just as a matter of uh, what are you trying to accomplish, but trying to decide that one group's feelings need to be respected, but other groups can handle uh, a burning or something. I mean, it's just, it's a messy game that the government should not be playing.
0: You're right. And, and that line, though, and, and look, I mean, you know, you, you're someone who writes a lot about religion, criticizes religion. There's a big difference between mm-hmm. criticizing religious beliefs and, you know, hate crime towards followers of that faith. There is Islamophobia. That that exists. But, yes, but it's still it a fair game to you're criticize right. the religion.
3: Right. And that's the thing. What may be provocative, what may be offensive to some people, there is a fine line here. I, listen, I read some of those stories about people who were burning Korans outside Islamic embassies or the embassies of uh, Muslim-majority nations and stuff. And I, react, I, I saw those articles and I thought, what are they doing? Nothing good is coming of this. They are not making some sort of point about free speech. They just want to upset Muslims who take that seriously. And I find that strategically a bad move. Um, but again, I have seen plenty of times when someone may want to, you know, burn a flag out of a sense of free speech right. and a right to protest and you know trying to make a point about how much they uh a country, their countries deserve to be respected i think those actually may have strategic purposes but again trying to ignore intent when it comes to any of this because the draft law does not say you know if you're burning a book because you're trying to make a larger point then you're exempt from punishment. It doesn't do anything like that. It just says, oh, you know what, there's a handful of books, none of you are allowed to do anything bad to and (laughs) because they are religious books. But that rule only applies to a handful of books that are religious and no other ones. I mean, why would you even try to legislate that in a place that, again, purportedly respects freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and that has seen the consequences of religious extremism. I mean, if this law passes, my fear is that there are going to be a lot of, you know, free speech advocates who say, you know what, how dare you pass this law? I am going to burn a holy book just to show that you shouldn't be passing laws like this, because what are you going to do, prosecute me? That will only lead to a rise in the very problem they are trying to solve.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. Uh, you're right up on all of this. It's up at uh, FriendlyAtheist.com. And man, thanks for making some uh, time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: All the best. Uh, that's Amant Meta. He's uh, editor at uh, FriendlyAtheist.com, writer, YouTuber, podcaster. Uh, and I think you make some important points here. Uh, yes, you should be free to, to criticize and condemn religion. And not just uh, in what you say, but also in what you write. And yes, what you do. As I mentioned yesterday, you know, with the recent passing of Sinead O'Connor, much has been made of what she did on Saturday Night Live. And in, in hindsight, the reaction to her was was harsh, was over the top. She was making a point. She was making a statement. It was an act of free expression by tearing up a picture of the pope. But it was deeply offensive to a lot of Catholics. But again, just because something is deeply offensive doesn't mean that it should be illegal or criminalized. In fairness, look, Sinead O'Connor wasn't arrested, and I don't think anyone proposed a law that would have made that act illegal. But that's kind of what we're doing here, or at least what Denmark is looking at doing here. Now, yeah, I mean, you know, to some extent, we've been through this. I mentioned the Mohammed cartoons. You go back to, God, what was that, 2006, 2007, when there were human rights cases brought forward in this country against those who had published or republished those cartoons. They were drawings. Nothing was being burned or destroyed. There were drawings of someone who was a historical figure. Yes, to Muslims, uh, Muhammad is much more than just a historical figure. To non-Muslims, that's all he was. And the idea that that any historical figure would be off limits for a cartoon or, or drawing or mockery is absurd. And it is, in its own way, offensive to the notion of freedom of speech and freedom of religion. You're free to believe that somebody's a prophet. But freedom of religion means that I don't have to believe that at all. You can follow your religious tenets. I don't have to follow yours or any religious tenets. That's how that works. So if if a country really wants to pass a law that you cannot burn any book ever under any circumstances, well, at least that would be consistent. But you can't have a law that says you're free to burn books except religious books. That doesn't make any sense. I think Denmark at least realizes, well, we can't just have a law about the Quran. but we can't burn all or ban all book burning. So I guess we'll just make it all religious books. But yes, in a country that, that has freedom of religion, you can't put holy books or religious texts uh, on, on a pedestal like this. You're, you're granting special privilege, special status to religious books, and that's not how it's supposed to work either. I understand, look, if I, I'm the leader of any country, and you've got people who are doing things that are going to provoke Islamic extremists, and now all of a sudden there's a security risk you're dealing with, and now all of a sudden you've got your intelligent people saying, yeah, we're worried of some kind of retaliation, our embassies might be vulnerable, our citizens might be vulnerable. You've got to take all of that seriously. So I understand the concern here. But look, the problem is... Not the burning of any book. The problem is those who believe that violence is justified when their religious sensibilities are offended. That's the problem here. The idea that you believe you can kill or destroy because somebody burned a copy uh, of a religious holy text...
1: So I think it needs it should just be a very basic, secure place where a prime minister can live safely uh, at a reasonable cost to taxpayers.
0: It was conservative leader Pierre Polyev speaking today and asked about the future of 24 Sussex Drive, asked about reports today uh, that we are going to abandon 24 Sussex Drive in favor of a new residence for our prime minister and what that residence should look like. So the person who could be the next prime minister, suggesting that it be pretty basic, pretty modest. And I mean, look, you would expect that kind of an answer. It would be pretty terrible politics for somebody who could be the next prime minister to say, I would love to have something lavish for me to live in. And it's a reason why we sort of take this decision out of the hands of the prime minister. But unfortunately, we've really kind of dithered on this. And we've got an untenable status quo. 24 Sussex Drive, the historic residence of the prime minister, uh, is dilapidated. It, it's unlivable and, and needs repairs, unfortunately, to the tune of you know, maybe $30 million in repairs. So that's a lot of money that I guess folks in Ottawa may be reluctant to commit. But now the situation we have is that because the prime minister and his family can't live there, they live at Rideau Cottage near where the governor general lives at Rideau Hall. That was not intended to be the prime minister's residence. And so a decision would have to be made, I guess if at some point that would become the permanent residence, but that's a a little bit awkward having the governor general living right there too. Story today from the CBC, the federal government is looking at dropping 24 Sussex as the prime minister's official residence and is considering several other sites in the city for a replacement. Uh, One area in consideration would be Rockcliffe Park. Uh, The park has a secondary parking lot surrounded by woods. It's further uh, from the road and from the Ottawa River, which certainly helps on the security side. Uh, Some other options are being looked at, including, as mentioned, Rideau Cottage, where the prime minister and his family, this prime minister, has been living since 2016. But at this point, no final choice has been made. Uh, look, we got to do something. We we can't allow this to continue. And regardless of who the prime minister is and what you think of that particular individual, this is about much more than that individual. And I, I don't think this is a good look for Canada. Well, joining us for some further thoughts on, on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Michael Warnick, uh, former, former clerk of the Privy Council of Canada. Uh, Jaroslawski, Chair of Public Sector Management at the University of Ottawa, also part of the Think Tank Canada 2020, uh, on the advisory board. Mr. Warnick, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Well, Thanks for reaching out. Is it at all encouraging that it seems as though maybe we're closer to a decision of some kind
4: here? Well, I think it's a good step that we're discussing the security and safety issues. That is the big problem with the 24 Sussex site, and it is a big part of the cost that involved. To make the place safe for the family uh, these days uh, means a certain amount of security features, and it means a setback from the road and the river to create, a, you know, a, a perimeter to keep the family safe. I agree with Mr. Polyev's uh, comments. We don't need a White House or a 10 Downing Street. We're mm-hmm. talking about a residence for a family, a little bit of home office capacity the sort of entertaining any ambassador's residence in Ottawa would have. But it's basically about uh, building a residence. And if we build a building, uh, you know, that lasts 100 years, which is an unreasonable, it'll be the place where 10, 12, 15 prime ministers and their families live.
0: Right. Why have things gotten to this point, though? Why have we been uh, so unable to, to make a decision here?
4: Uh, toxic politics and and uh, some of the media reaction. I think every prime minister going back five or six has said there's no upside to this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to get a lot of uh, blowback from spending money. I'm going to be accused of, of perks and spending on myself. Um, so there's just never a political upside to take the decision. You kick it down the road and you kick it down the road, and we end up with an un- unusable building.
0: So how does this all work? Because we have the National Capital Commission that plays a role here. I mean, you know, we we do need to try to separate it a little bit from the prime minister. But ultimately, this kind of spending does need some government approval. So how how about the process?
4: Well, any spending will go to parliament. And that's where the problem probably lies is it'll have to go through a parliamentary process and somebody will oppose it. And and that's, uh, you know, that that's a big obstacle that would still have to go through. There are uh, five or six official residences in the Ottawa region. Uh, they include the one for the governor general, uh, the, you know, the residents at uh, Harrington Lake and so on. And the National Capital Commission is the body that has been operating and maintaining the residences uh, on behalf of Canadians. There are other ways to do it. Um, other countries create uh, trust funds with endowments and take it out of the political world.
0: If we are giving up on 24 Sussex Drive, and, you know, the story insists no final decision has been made, but, I mean, is that the right decision? What, what, should, what should become of 24 Sussex?
4: Well, that's a separate issue. I mean, there's a nice piece of real estate on Sussex Drive, which could be repurposed into something else, and, and you could have a, you know, a lively debate about what to do with that site. I think uh, the task for now is to find a safe residence for the prime minister and their family.
0: Yeah, it, you know, safe. that that means obviously addressing the security side and, and something reasonable befitting a, a prime minister, not, not overly luxurious necessarily, but uh, should still have some sort of prestige, maybe?
4: Uh, I'm not an architect. I think functionally <laughs> we're talking about, you know, uh, anticipating different family configurations over the next hundred years, uh, having a guest bedroom or two, a home office, uh, you know, a bit of kitchen and hospitality facilities. These are the kinds of buildings which you do see in Ottawa, often uh, occupied by the ambassadors of other countries. So you'd be hard pressed to find a country that doesn't provide, you know, a reasonable residence for their head of government. Right.
0: Uh, I mean, the current prime minister is living at Rideau College, Cottage. I understand there may be some security issues with that going forward, but there, there's also the concern of the proximity to the governor general, or maybe some historic optics uh, around that. Is is that a problem? As you see it.
4: I'm not particularly fussed about it. I think there are limitations to the actual building in terms of kitchen facilities and things like that. Uh, I don't know all the details, but it um, it would require a little bit of upgrading, uh, you know, to turn it into a permanent solution. And, uh, you know, there are issues about putting our head of government and head of state in exactly the same location and uh, sort of telling terrorists, you know, here they are.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Well, and, and you know, you have the problem of, of you know, there would be neighbors here and, you know, these are, are nicer neighborhoods. They, they, I guess we might run into that, right? Some some folks who would live around these proposed areas saying, you know, we're not so sure we want that here.
4: Well, I think that's why we're a long way from actual construction or uh, anybody moving in. Um, anytime anything that is proposed in Ottawa, there's a certain, you know, not in my neighborhood reaction uh, kicks in. There was a proposal years ago to put the U.S. Embassy in Rockcliffe Park and it was beaten back by the residents of Rockcliffe and they had oh, really? to go somewhere else. So, yeah. so you know, we, we'll see. Uh, we've, you know, I've lived in Ottawa long enough to see many projects announced uh, and then cancelled by a subsequent government, you know, portrait gallery and a history museum and a federal court and so on. So I'm actually encouraged that Mr. Polyev's has taken the approach uh, that this is something that needs to get done and there is at least a glimmer of hope that they can work together and, and find a solution.
0: Yeah, let's hope so. Um, you know, Given the state of 24 Sussex, I mean, it would cost tens of millions to, to get it up to speed for a prime minister to live there. Is there any kind of situation where we could preserve it as some kind of historic site or something that, you know, i take my family to go visit 24 Sussex, or is it just kind of a write-off maybe at this point?
4: I think there are lots of things you could do with a site. As I said, that, that's a separate debate to be had, and no doubt it would go on for a while. It could be the sort of hospitality and reception area. Could be, you know, there are a number of purposes you could you could put on that site. Um it, it's much easier to keep uh you know a site safe for temporary events than to have it twenty-four seven secure. So yeah. um but I, I would not try to solve both problems at the same time if there's an opening for uh the parties to work together and agree on getting getting the job done uh to build a safe and secure residence that nobody would be moving into for three or four years. Uh, we we should get on with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. We'll see what uh, comes of all of this. Michael Warnick, appreciate your perspective uh, on all this. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon.
4: Thanks for asking.
0: All the best. Uh, This is Michael Warnick, former clerk of the Privy Council of Canada, uh, uh, Jaraleski Chair of Public Sector Management at the University of Ottawa. Uh, So his thoughts on the need to, to resolve this. It is kind of embarrassing. The situation right now where we have an official residence for the prime minister, you know, there's rats in the walls. It's dilapidated. No one can actually live there. No one can really actually be there. That's a sad state of affairs. Uh, Look, the prime minister's fine. Uh, You know, Weedo Cottage is nice. And there's also the summer residence at Harrington Lake they can take advantage of. You know, there are are perks with being prime minister. And I think Canadians are okay with that to a point. But we got to decide something. And just, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. We'll deal with this. Because it's not just about, gee, where's Justin Trudeau going to live? Or, gosh, where's Pierre Poilievre going to live? It's where is the, the head of our government, this country's prime minister, going to live? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.